Hello, everybody. My name is Kevin Verga, and I'm joined as always with my co-host, Devin D'Agostino. Devin, it's good to see you. How are you? It's good to see you too, Kev. It's been a while since we've recorded. It's been a while since we've talked, and I'm looking forward to this conversation. Me as well. And I'm looking forward to stopping making sense. And what that means is every episode, Devin and I choose a talking head song to analyze and ponder. And we let our minds wander and take us to uncharted realms of science and comedy and music. And we answer such burning questions as, who took the money? Who took the money away? Where? Where is my common sense? Why stay in college? Why go to night school? And most importantly, where is that large automobile? All this and more coming up on this episode of Devin and Kevin Stop Making Sense. Devin, today's episode is Sugar on My Tongue from I Found It on the Deluxe Edition of 77. But I do believe it was released in 1977. I often like to go, I do my initial thinking, but then I go and take a look at some other people's interpretations of the song because it helps me spur new ideas. Honestly, I found this interpretation and I just latched onto it. And I think it's a perfect summation of the song. And we may just have a very quick podcast episode because whoever this person is, they summed it up pretty perfectly. They got it. So credit to you, Space Snail from songmeanings.com. If you're listening, wow. Space Snail said, it's from the perspective of a horse being given sugar cubes, and very cleverly, the lyrics also work at a human level. I think it sums up pretty nice, Kev. I don't have anything else to say other than that. Yeah, I'm satisfied. Uh, how are you going to stay hungry for next week? Uh, with sugar cubes and maybe some hay. <laughs> hey, you've been listening to Devin and Kevin Stop Making Sense. Thank you so much. We'll see you next week. In, so, for, in every episode I've ever edited, we've ended our show early six, like six times. I think it's the funniest thing. Yeah, I enjoy it. Um, that was our side horse podcast. Devin and Ke- Kevin stopped neighing sense. Oh, nice. Will, yeah, yeah, right off top. I, that's, no. that's one of those sentences. You ever like make a sentence and not know where it's going and hope it gets to the proper place? Every single time I say a sentence. There we go. I knew I wanted to pun in that sentence. I had no plan for one. Luckily, it came together. Now, Devin, this is an arc. This is a three-episode arc. I know that you're aware of it because you've been working so hard to, to make this horse pun because in episode seven of And She Was, we're talking about, hey, in the beginning, and you say, I was going to make a horse joke, uh, but I forgot it. And that was the, that was the horse joke. See? Nice well, you know, we talk a lot about in Talking Heads how and David Byrne is a songwriter. There's always this underlying meaning. I'm talking about like neuroticism, sinisterness. But what I really think it is, is horses. There's yeah, a running right. theme of horses in his music. Yeah, well, let's rattle some off, obviously. So we got Girlfriend is Better. Road to Nowhere. Road to Nowhere, yeah. You know, yeah. oh my God, you're right. That is really all about horses. It's a horse's perspective. Horse doesn't know where it's going. It's on a road to nowhere. Yeah. And you know, I never wanted to say that loud, but slippery people, like I know it says people in the title, but obviously it's an allegory about 
horses. It's very clearly about horses. Swamp. No one understands swamp because no one looks at it through the lens of horses. When you listen to Swamp and think about horse, it's truly a masterpiece. And building off that, this is making me excited. We watched Swamp and Stop Making Sense. I always consider that song a palate cleanser because it's in between two very powerful songs. And it's, it's definitely out there. And he's doing all these very odd and angular motions. And he's doing that one where he's like dragging his leg around like it's broken. That is how horses really go out. You know, a horse is walking through a swamp. It breaks its leg, and that's a tragic ending. And that's yeah. kind of the, the bitter taste that swamp leaves in my mouth is the equivalent of imagining a horse with a broken leg in my mind. Or a, ha- a horse drinking swamp water, which is also bitter. So maybe yeah. that's what he was going for. He wanted us to get the experience of a horse in the swamp, which that song really gives me, really does. <laughs> Much like this song gives me the experience of having sugar on my tongue, like a horse would. When was the last time <laughs> I saw a horse? Well, actually, I heard a horse galloping outside my window just five minutes before we started recording. We're in the yeah, city, so. And you live in New York City, and you yeah. live on you live on a, a luxury sky rise. So it's so odd that you heard <laughs> a horse galloping by. Yeah, I don't know. That's strange. I didn't make that connection, but you're right. Well, I, I can imagine what it is. Is uh, it was probably a Pegasus. Yeah, I was imagining like Ghost Riders in the Sky by Johnny Cash, uh-huh. like Yippie Kaye. They're they're riding through the sky and they just kind of went past your luxury penthouse on uh, West Twenty Third Street. Yeah, you guys can feel free to visit. <laughs> Are there I don't know, West Twenty Third? There's probably luxury high rises on West Twenty Third. I feel like that's a little too low, maybe. I actually don't think there is because from my brief tenure as a tour guide at the Museum of Natural History, um, all-time favorite of mine. Manhattan schist is a type of rock that's found in Manhattan, but it's only found in Midtown. It's not downtown, and that's why there's no tall buildings, because Manhattan schist is the only type of bedrock strong enough to support really tall skyscrapers. Yeah, and that's a really tough lesson to learn the hard way. No rock pun intended. (laughs) Rock pun intended. The hard way. Oh, there we go. Yeah. The horse way. Now we're forcing it. Let's get back to this song. Sugar on my tongue. (laughs) We're forcing it. <laughs> All right. Oh my God. Um, we have so much pent up, I don't know, nonsense in us because this is the beginning of season two, episode 10. We're, we're releasing Sugar on My Tongue and we're going back to the first album, just like how we started with Uh Oh, Love Comes to Town, the first Talking Heads album, the opener to the first Talking Heads album. We go to another 77 song, Sugar on My Tongue. Now, I really like this song. And may I foreshadow by saying, I really liked this song in the past tense. (laughs) Still do, but definitely has. We're talking about a bitter taste in my mouth. No sugar pun intended. It's kind of the opposite of the crux of the song. This song has taken an arc from my first inception and finding it to literally right now, moments before starting recording, listening to the song one more time before we hop on here. The song has changed to this kind of wicked creepiness when in the past it's been so joyful and dancey to me. What end on the spectrum do you land on with this song? What I like a lot about 77 is the songs are very straightforward. Mm -hmm. There's more there if you choose to, but if not, you can just listen and it's like simple. You know what it's about. This song can be taken very much on for face value. 
it's almost like mundane and that's a common theme in david burns work he's very interested in like midwest middle america the song can be taken very simply as someone asking for sugar from their neighbor there's other levels there but if you choose to depending on how you come into the song you could interpret it that way but i'm sure you're going to get to it there's a whole other way to maybe see this song as well on this website when he highlights and talks about she's my neighbor fill my cup i'll bet you baby she can fill it up she'll put the sugar on my tongue he says and i quote i think burn wants more than sugar here and i think he's right when i really first listened to this uh, uh this song and may i say i have this song saved two years ago to the day January interesting 17th. and when I found it I was like oh this is such a jittery jam and it's just two chords that go back and forth you can sing it on the top of your lungs you can sing it in the car you can kind of just dance around to it and now two years later uh, I agree with this mysterious person quoting on genius.com where I think Byrne wants more than just a jittery jam or uh, just some sugar on his tongue I think he's looking for something more what do you think I think so too. Um, yeah, I mean, I just like, I love the, that those opening lines. She's my neighbor, fill my cup. I'll bet you, baby, she can fill it up. Because clearly there's something sexual here. But it's common with David Byrne's songs. He comes in with this sort of like naive, childlike perspective. Yeah, yeah. And you could come into that song with it. But like you said, more and more listening you hear that, we always say that word sinister underneath, right? But even the song, it's, I don't know enough about the musical theory to mention it, but are there like dissonant tones in there or something? Something about it is just off-putting. Yeah, that's a good question. It's a post-punk slash new wave tune and that it has this punk aesthetic of just two chords for most of it. And it is a little dissonant. It goes from E major to A minor. Usually in a normal song, E major would be related to A major. But instead, this one, he goes back and forth between E major and A minor. If you're playing guitar, it's quite simple to do those two chords. They're just the same shape moving up and down a string. It's very punky in that anyone can play Sugar on My Tongue. It's a very fun song to play and dance around with. But in terms of music theory, it's just a little bit dissonant. Just a little bit dissonant. Just the changing of a major third to a minor third changes it to that, huh, there's something up here, but nothing too out of the ordinary, which works so well with the lyrical content of the song. Exactly. I mean, the lyrics are very simple. They're very straightforward, like many of the songs on 77. So what was your interpretation? Well, let me start out with where I was. So I said I found the song, saved it on Spotify two years ago to the day. I found it and started listening to it on like a sidewalk, just walking down the street. And it's so catchy. As soon as it comes in, that th- those arpeggiated guitar licks mixed with that really rumbling and catchy drum beat that Chris France lays down. I mean, it's, it's mystical. It's almost transporting you into the song. And you just know that there's a potential energy that's going to be released once Burns starts singing. And it just hooks you in. And you just kind of want to jitter around and, you know, swing your hips down the street to it. And you also kind of want to sing this song out loud. This song doesn't start with the lyrics, she's my neighbor, fill my cup. It starts with nonverbal speech that Byrne lets out. 
And that in itself is kind of punky and lets you get into it because you don't need to know the lyrics the first time you listen to it to start singing along. You can just start saying, oh, 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 oh. And now you're singing along to a David Byrne song, to a Talking Head song. It's great. To call it back to Uh Oh, Love Comes to Town. What are those things called? <laughs> I talked about them for like 20 minutes. The guttural blah, blah. Oh, a, oh, a glottis. A glottal A glottal space. space. A glottal Starts space. off with some glottal spaces. Yeah. All-time favorite on this podcast. And I, I really find that makes this song unique because I love David Byrne's lyricism in that his first lines are such a strong thesis. And even in this song, his first verbal lines of, she's my neighbor, fill my cup, I'll bet you, baby, she can fill it up. It sets in motion the rest of the song. I can imagine him writing it down on a pen and a pad and just letting the song flow out from these lines. And a lot of these Talking Heads songs have these really strong openers, but I don't know of any that start with glottal spaces. Yeah, it almost it's it's part of it if that makes any sense. But it feels lyrical. And actually, getting back to what you said about the thesis, right? These exclamations of oh oh oh, that itself could almost be the thesis. Let's put everything out in the open here. I'll double entendre for you there. Nice, there it is. I know you wanted to bring in some aspects of it. Let's be honest, right? This song is about sex, or it seems like it's about sex. It feels like it's about sex. I think it's about wanting sex, right? Yeah. He wants the sugar on his tongue. Give me some sugar. I don't know if you saw this, but there is a cover of the song by the rapper Trick Daddy. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and it's very explicit. Like, it's very Mm -hmm. clear that it's about sex. I think here, like talking what I mentioned before, it's a little more up in the air and that it can be interpreted in that way of very simple, oh, he just wants sugar from his neighbor. Yeah. But you wanted to talk, you wanted to bring some ideas in. I'm excited yeah. to hear them. I appreciate it. I was being very coy and I was a little shy. And yeah. I'm glad you put it all out there, Devin. Um, <laughs> uh, that's That's the journey that I took. And I didn't realize, I just didn't really pick up on the underlying sexual nature of the song when I first discovered it. And it took me two years of listening when it it sometimes takes a long time for a song to really hit you. And I'm happy that it did because that's the whole nature of these conversations that we have and share is that we now have new interpretations of songs in the past. Every single time I've been like, wow, this makes me like the song even more. And this song just makes me a little more wary to put it on or play it at a party. Take it off. <laughs> hey, there it is. Yeah. And I have an anecdote that's so closely linked with this song. And it's also Talking Heads related. And it's also romantic. I was on my way with my romantic partner at the time about a year ago to American Utopia. And we're going to go see American Utopia. And we're walking down Broadway. And I was getting ready to like... I was getting excited for American Utopia, so I was listening to some talking heads. But I was with my romantic partner, so I wanted to share the music with her. So I like we she put on my headphones and then I just like clicked sugar on my tongue because I know it's a striking song. It catches you, like we said before. And like I said before, you don't need to know the song to start singing along. So she starts singing with my noise canceling headphones on in the middle of Broadway, you know, and just starts yelling <laughs> it like tone deafly, not because she wasn't a good singer or performer but because you can't hear your voice yeah and i get all embarrassed i'm like stop it take the headphones <laughs> off and she's like right. what i was just singing i am in new york city no one really cares why am i embarrassed that 
someone I really care about is just singing along to a song that I really like. And I realized I had really bad secondhand embarrassment. So don't let that get in the way of my life. And then we went to go see American Utopia and it was fantastic. What a night. And now a year after that, now discussing it here right now and having kind of a more adverse reaction as I found this more perverted sexuality under it. And I attributed the word voyeurism for it. I think the singer of this song, not David Byrne himself, but the narrator who's singing the song is a voyeur. I imagine he lives next door to his neighbor. Mm-hmm. And I think those glottal spaces in the beginning are kind of like, now I hear them as not just fun little ways to introduce a song, but like a desperate wailing. Yeah, I mean, there's that very uncomfortable line, right? Where he says, finally, I see that you appear. My friends are here and they ask of me, is this the time that we're going to see her put that sugar on my tongue? No matter what your interpretation of this song is, that sort of throws a wrench into the whole thing. It makes you take a double take, like what? So you're singing it, you're playing along, and then you hear that line. And even after you say it out loud, there's a pause and you're like, did he just say that? Comparing the characters in this world to the very good relationship that I was experiencing in real life. Me and my romantic partner are being romantic and having a good time and going to a really exciting night that involved David Byrne. And then this outside people perceiving us is what made me uncomfortable. They are the friends here waiting to see what would happen. And I think that bridge part is always the one that stuck out like a sore thumb. And they make it obvious, like they really change up keys. And it was the first part of the song that really stuck out to me like, oh, maybe there's a creepy factor. Why is this person's friends getting involved? It seems like the she in the song has less autonomy than the he in the song because he's introducing his friends and his friends kind of are expecting something. And she never has a voice in the song. Like I mentioned before, how it's sort of a mundane topic where it's also taking, getting sugar from your neighbor is something you associate with a very friendly gesture, right? It's like, a very, firstly, it's very normal, or at least it's considered normal, like an average thing to do. And it's friendly. You're just talking to your neighbor. You're reaching out to them. But he flips that around. And not only does he make it something sexual, which is definitely like it can be interpreted that way, the idea of give me sugar. But he takes a step further and he brings in the friends. Yeah, that was what I realized too when I'm seeing, when I'm just reading the lyrics is, will she give me sugar? I don't think people say that a lot nowadays, but maybe in 1977 they did, of like giving someone sugar is a sexual term, a sexual innuendo. And then getting a sugar, a cup of sugar from your neighbor is supposed to be like the most neighborly thing you could do combining those two aspects really caused some friction. I think that's where the song lands is in this gray area for me now, just like how the innuendo itself is in this gray area or how a gesture like knocking on your neighbor's door could lead from one thing to another or could just lead to, hey, thanks for the sugar. See you later. I almost picture this song as pictured like that quintessential suburb, like stretching for miles, right? In the Midwest, it's all flatlands, just house after house after house. Hmm. It looks very innocent and nice and kind, and you don't think anything of it, and the neighbor's knocking on the neighbor's door to get sugar. But then it's like when they close the door and they shut the blinds, and that's, it's that scene, and you realize there's something creepy going on. It's not that perfect thing. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Stepford Wives. I haven't, but I can imagine this type of idea you're showing. Yeah, because Stepford Wives is about this town and all the people are like 
Granted, I haven't seen, I've only seen parts of it, but like, I know <laughs> this is the class there it is every time. <laughs> but I know the major idea. I know that, so just hear me out, okay? Um, everyone seems very normal and average. This is very calm town, but it, there's something off about everyone, right? And yeah. the wives, it's a commentary on like this 1950s ideal of a woman and all the wives are all their homemakers and they cook and they clean and they're very obedient to their husbands. And you find out at the end of the movie, spoiler alert, I haven't seen it either. So I feel comfortable <laughs> spoiling the end. Yourself. All of the women are robots. That's a robot. They're all robots. Yeah, there, there you go. Another common theme, the robots in love, but they're all robots. That's, that's why And there's like, I think there's other off things going on in the town, but that's what sort of 77 and really all, a lot of talking head songs are about is it's very robots. plain <laughs> robots and horses, horses. <laughs> <laughs> in this very plain ordinary setting with like you said very human things going on in the background desire feelings that aren't accepted aren't considered maybe socially acceptable but what everyone has what everyone goes through and unavoidable I think I always kind of knew that this song was a little off and a little weird and a little sexually charged, just like a lot of rock songs are. It now has gone an extra way, like an extra step. Like at first I thought that it's sung from the gut. He's just singing like he's in CBGBs. Now I think this song's sung from the groin. It's sung from the (laughs) navel. Like some of his songs, songs we've said he, like it's a really emotional release. And I think this one is too, but just not from the, soul as much from like the loins <laughs> you know what I mean? no no i see what you mean yeah it's sexually yeah. charged and that's that's inherent to songwriting it's inherent to human nature this narrator of the song is crossing a boundary of inviting friends it goes beyond fantasy and that's why i kind of feel like it's a little bitter more bitter now than when I entered into this past listening. Because it has that double meaning. This narrator can always fall back and be like, no, 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 I was just asking for sugar. Yeah. Right? But it's gaslighting. It's like, gaslighting it really, almost. Yeah, like it really is. Like in the beginning, those first two paragraphs, she's my neighbor, fill my cup, and then into sweet, sweet, lover, lover, never, never find another. I mean, those are just kind of, they seem so innocent. It seems like a loving fantasy, like this person is interested in the other. I like the structure of the lyrics to back up this idea of the song that we're bringing in because I see it as there's first two lines of each verse are new lyrics. The rest of the verse is just repeating, give me sugar, sugar on my tongue, give me, give me, give me some. Like it's almost like a really lustful crush and that you start thinking like fantasizing, oh, maybe I'll go ask her for a sugar. And then it, the verse devolves into madness of like illogical thought that I think is really involved with lust. Like you start out with a thought process and then it just kind of dissolves into a more primal aspect. And that's why I thought and still do think like this song is sung from a really emotional place, not like other talking head songs that are very cerebral, like ones that we've done, like The Good Thing, where they're very lyric driven. This one yes. is very very primal and it's not until he really starts thinking clearly and using new words that we get into him talking to his friends where he can now be very acquainted with them and say i've been waiting years and years finally i see that you appear my friends are here and they ask me is this the time that we're going to see her put the sugar on your tongue and then it goes right back into him thinking about it just repeating 
sugar on my tongue, sugar on my tongue into madness and so on and so on as many talking head songs end and devolve into. I'm thinking about like, and this is actually a theme in like classical music as well. It's a symphony and it's about this man who's going insane over this woman and the little tune of that represents her comes up over and over again. I think it ends up and there's like witches and there's dancing around the devil, but it's like this obsession and there's a word for it in music, idea fix, right? That fixed idea. And it comes in throughout this symphony over and over again, you hear it and the symphony continuously devolves into something really corrupt. And in the end, he ends up in hell being danced with witches dancing around him. But I think it's that similar, like this idea fix, right? This thing he gets stuck in his head and he's obsessing over and he goes to this dark place. And almost at the end, right? Like you said, he's devolving into insanity and maybe tries to fall back on it. Two other things I'm thinking here, right? The, my friends are here and they ask of me, is this the time that we're going to see her put the sugar on my tongue? Maybe it's not like something voyeuristic, but instead it's leaning towards that like toxic masculinity. Like you're mm-hmm. finally going to hook up with her, man. Like, is this the time? Is something going to yeah. happen? Yeah. And the other thing I wanted to bring in, and I want to hear your thoughts on it is in an earlier episode, we did strange overtones, which again, I think is about a man mm-hmm. fantasizing about a woman, but in a much more, or at least we interpret it as much more innocent, loving, like, her dancing around on her own and playing music together yeah. versus yeah. this where it's this weird perversion underlying it. Yeah. I, I told, that's a great point. Um, if you haven't listened to episode six, strange overtones with our friend, Emma, definitely go back and listen to it because it is a much pleasant song to the ears, but still has that quality of neighborliness and an interest in what we defined as a male singer to a female subject but we definitely found it much more enjoyable the male singer was guiding this person in a musical pursuit and we talked about this in our episode about pulled up and glass concrete and stones the music matures and maybe might be reading too into it but that's what we do here his songs could almost be interpreted as reading these characters throughout life like it's the same characters appearing over and over again the same things but from a more mature perspective yeah. Because he is writing it as a more mature person at the time, as older and more experienced. Yeah. I hope that whoever is singing Sugar on My Tongue becomes the person that's singing Strange Overtones because it, they obviously, you know, got some help. So whenever I wanted to put this song on to listen to it in preparation for this recording, I kept accidentally typing in And She Was. And I wasn't sure why. And I realized they have similar structures. They have similar openings. They have these arpeggiated guitar patterns with a catchy drum hook. They have lyrical content of a man observing a woman. We discussed a lot in that episode, episode seven of And She Was, a lot about the male gaze. And we talked about 100 Years of Solitude with Remedios, the beauty, and people were so infatuated with her. And one man dies talking to her and sneaking into her bathroom while she's bathing. I've found that these songs are kind of sister songs. Again, maybe the timeline chronologically is this kind of really troubled person in Sugar My Tongue observing someone. And she was a little more tame. It seems like this person that was just interested in this girl that did LSD a lot and admired or envied her freedom and then into the, the trio of strange overtones of someone that's kind of a father figure or just like a more respectful person. It's almost like these three songs can be lined up on a spectrum from 
gross to nice. Yeah, no, I like that a lot. I agree completely. By the way, it just came back to me. The idea fix is from Berlouis Symphony Fantastique. So that's what the name was that came back to me. But yeah, I think that's very interesting. And that's because it speaks to this idea, I think in general, of this male with a female muse, right? We interpret it as very loving, passionate. It's something to be admired. But at the same time, what Sugar on, our to- on My Tongue, I think, shows us is that it can go wrong. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, it is very creepy to think about, too. Even And She Was and um, Strange Overtones, we interpret them as nice. Oh, because he has these nice, fancy thoughts about them flying through the airs or making music. But is it ever fair for someone to make this ideal picture of another person, view them basically as an object in their mind, right? Yeah. No matter what it is, is this really romantic to do or is it in a way removing their agency? I really appreciate you saying that. You're right. This is flawed. It's flawed thinking. This isn't rational. It has a sense of danger underlying it that should be acknowledged. Yeah, I think like this whole idea of this admiration of like unrequited love and going after someone even when they're not interested or it's not clear used to be a major theme in literature and film and music as well. And it was considered something admirable, right? Like fighting for that person, getting there even though they may not be interested. But really, it's a creepy thing to do when push comes to shove, right? This obsession, it's taking away the agency from the other human being. And I appreciate you bringing it there because I did want to bring in a more broad idea of voyeurism in the 21st century. And I also wanted to bring in a female perspective. So I was, I was doing some research and I found the artist Sandra Phillips and she had a 2010 exhibit at the Tate Modern called Exposed, Voyeurism, Surveillance, and the Camera. And she stated that her exhibit was an exploration of voyeurism and inherent human desire. And she describes it as a primal interest, a primal curiosity. And talks about how voyeurism comes from the, the verb of to see. It's not just seeing, it's, it's a secret seeing. It's a secret looking that has an inherent unknowing of the subject. And that's what crosses a line. That's how she finishes this interview I was watching. Is that, that she states that it crosses a boundary, an unsaid boundary, because of the unknowingness. And I found her images that she was showing very striking because they're meant to be striking. The nature of of the art is striking. I found it striking because of the technological aspect and really made me scared about what future voyeuristic tendencies are going to be like because she uses the camera, a technological device to, to explore this. And I'm thinking of more technology that's coming in the future. Everyone has a high definition phone in their pocket that can record terabytes of data in 4K HD, in panoramic view, and all sorts of things. You have social media, you have deep fakes, you have Photoshop. There's all sorts of ways to be very voyeuristic. And this voyeurism of unknowingly looking in on someone's life has now become part of everyday cultural life. Now, there's a distinction when I'm thinking about social media of Instagram, TikTok, Facebook, Twitter, into these things that they post willingly. And I think that's the interesting distinction that we're going to have to make in the future is that we're willingly putting ourselves out there 
and anything that we put ourselves out there on these social media pages can be dissected by anyone that can access them for any amount of time without us knowing that they're doing it in the moment, but also us subconsciously knowing that that can be done and entering a social contract or even a legal contract with these social media companies. Well, it's interesting um, because I actually want to bring in, and maybe we can wrap them both together later on, the idea of how technology has impacted how we interact with other people, but in the sense of community. But before you do that, do you think we should die first? Yeah, let's let's die. Let's let's break this tension because we've built it up plenty. I'll tell you that much. Mm-hmm. Let's die. All right, I got our die here. I'm gonna roll. I'll roll for you first. Let's see what character you are. All right. You got a four, so you are Elvis. Oh, oh, wow. Oh. Okay. Yeah, get that uh, accent ready. Elvis voice ready. And I'm an ancient Greek. I got a three, so I'm an ancient Greek. And our setting is the Garden of Eden. So Elvis and an ancient Greek in the Garden of Eden. <laughs> and scene. I like your hair. I've never Thanks. seen hair like that before. Yeah, hey, I appreciate it. How do you get it all sticky-uppy like that? How do I get it all what? Sticky-uppy. sticky-uppy. That's Greek for making it look like that it's a good question i usually use like swab for men um it's actually pretty good i usually get it like a like a wegmans um how do you get your hair like that like just covered in dirt and and mulch and like not washed obviously yeah i usually rub it in dirt and mulch and not wash it you know stick to the basics and basics you know this place is nice Nothing's eating anything else. That's cool. Everything's vegetarian. There's a tree over there with apples and a snake on it. You want to go talk to that snake? Let's go talk to that snake. Hey, guys, I'm a snake. Welcome to the Garden of Eden. Can you guys introduce yourselves? Hey, uh, Mr. Dirty Hair. <laughs> What's your name? It's Professor Dirty Hair to you. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, Professor Dirty Hair is my name. I'm sorry, Devin. <laughs> and making my hair dirty is my game. <laughs> I wanted to be the snake. I'm just throwing that out there. I had it all planned out. <laughs> Can we both be snakes? Let's both be snakes. I'm an yeah, ancient Greek snake. snake. Okay. Be a snake. Okay. I'm a not. I'm a. I don't speak human oh, okay. English. Yeah. Hey, this is my good friend uh, Stephen. Say hi, Stephen. <laughs> and. <laughs> And you, uh, sticky up hair, what's your name? My name is actually Nelvis. Um, I don't think I'm supposed to be here. I got this like leather in the mail to meet in this garden at this very specific time from an address I didn't really know. And it just said, current occupant of this apartment, please show up at this time. And I did because, you know, it runs in the Nelvis lineage to like be very on time. But what am I doing here? Why am I here with a seemingly ancient greek professor and two snakes one of them who is animated and one who's not can anyone explain what the freak is going on i can because i'm god yep i am god i am god and i am going to explain why you guys are here in the garden of eden hey to god this is nelvis sorry for interrupting you god i know yeah, that was a little rude, but I'll allow it. 
<laughs> but um, since I'm here kind of against my will, I figure I have just a big enough ego to interrupt God. I have a question. Go for it. Um, what did my cat name me? That's a very good question. And although I'm an all-powerful being who knows all and sees all and does all, I am unable to understand cats. What? Yep. Who made I don't know. Cats? They, they just sort of appeared. They just sort of came there. I made the heavens. I made the earth. And then there was cats. And I just, I let it be. I didn't question it. <laughs> and it was good. Wow. And it was so good. is there a separate creator of cats or another cat god that maybe we can get in here? Like we, it's already a pretty full house in this Garden of Eden. We got a Roman. We got me, Nelvis, who's not supposed to be here. I swear I was just <laughs> watching Netflix. <laughs> listen, man, listen. Devin. Hi there. Devin. I'm the cat god. <laughs> <laughs> the cat god. I'm I trying to talk called. to Devin. This is Kevin. <laughs> This is Kevin, not Nelvis, not a snake, not a cat god. This is me talking to Devin. Devin, do you hear me? Devin, are you there? I'm there. I'm scared. I'm scared because I got Elvis, and I tried to play out of it by being Nelvis. Who's just flipped it around? I would have gone. I've been like, thank you, man. Thank you very much. I'm Elvis. I was scared. Garden of Eden. I was scared to do a voice, so I played it safe by being Nelvis. Who's just this boring guy that doesn't even want to be in the bit. And that's not fair. It's not fair to you. It's not fair to God. It's not fair to the cat guy. I mean, Nelvis is an asshole. He interrupted God. That's not fair. So where do we go from here? Nelvis sounds kind of Greek. So I'll be Elvis. <laughs> Lord Almighty, feel my temperature rising. <laughs> higher and higher. Cat God, eating my soul. So there's, let's just take stock. In addition to me and you, Kevin and Devin, there's Nelvis. There's now Elvis. The real Elvis, There's yeah. two snakes, one that talks, one that doesn't. There's God and there's Cat God. So there's kind of duplicates of every single person here. And the ancient Greek. And the ancient Greek named yeah. Professor Dirty Hair. <laughs> Professor Dirty Hair. <laughs> okay. I'm no longer scared as long as you're Elvis. And I really didn't expect to say that sentence today. But I'm going to hop back in. I'm going to be Nelvis. You were just Cat God. You could also be Elvis. But let's just hop back in. Okay, ready? <gasps> cat God, what are you doing here? I came to spread rock and roll because I'm also Elvis. The cat God is Elvis also? The Cat God is Elvis. Oh, my God. Oh, my Cat God. Yeah. Oh, my Cat God. Thank you. Um... Damn, I can't think of any Elvis songs right now. <laughs> you are Elvis. You're an omnipotent Elvis. And you don't know any Elvis songs. Well, Elvis slash Cat God, I have a question for you. Are you ready? Go for it. Meow. What did my cat name me? He named you Elvis. What? Yeah, he named you Elvis, which is why you were picked for this bit, because you are Elvis. Or Nelvis named Elvis by your cat. Oh my God, a meteor. Oh, we died. <laughs> we did it, guys. Cat Kevin God. and Devin died. Thank it was actually God. a big ball of yarn because yeah. he was cat gods so with yarn. <sighs> Devin, that one was tough. Um, that was tough. It's, but we were out of practice. 
we're at a practice and I wasn't ready to be Elvis. And you know, mm-hmm. you know, if I'm being honest with you, man, I, I can't do voices very well. They scare me. I can't do impressions. I'm worried about them. And um, thanks for taking over as Elvis. Halfway yeah. through that bit there. Uh, your snake was a little off too. Your snake yeah. impression. Too many words. Not enough <laughs> hissing. <laughs> no hissing. Um, but I do like this idea of Nelvis, this kind of nonchalant, um, you know, coastal elite that doesn't really want to be there. I think I can play those characters really well. Um, so forgive me if I really try to start fully committing to this Nelvis character, because I think in a way, I am Nelvis, you know? I would agree to that. I always thought the same. We'll keep him in mind. I'll put him on the, I'll put him on the die. Thanks, man. I hope Nelvis comes back. Cat gods and Nelvis aside, let's stop making sense. And let's talk a little bit more about the sugar. Sure. So the way I took it was I wanted to sort of look into the idea of getting sugar from a neighbor, right? Because it's something that I think we all sort of have heard of before and know, but I don't know anyone who's actually ever done it, knocked on their neighbor's door and asked for a cup of sugar. Mm-hmm. So the first thing I discovered was this article by Laura Rabinovich. I apologize if I pronounced her name incorrectly, but it was the history of asking your neighbor for sugar. Hmm. And interesting, she took it like this. She began the article discussing how pre-industrial revolution, there were no big grocery stores to go pick up food. So you, when you needed something, you'd exchange things with your neighbor, obviously, right? Because you didn't have, you couldn't go to the store and pick up sugar. And food in general became a very communal experience because kitchens too. Very few people had full kitchens. So food, whether it was asking for it, cooking, was all about community. And even with the rise of cities, people living in close quarters, there was still this frequent exchange of goods. But this all changed with like the idea of big stores, buying things in bulk. We don't need to ask our neighbors because you buy enough sugar to last you a lifetime. You have all the sugar you need, so why ask your neighbor? And also just like ideas that we can Amazon something, you can get things instantly, right? I want to look a little bit more into this. And it was interesting because in that Google search, an article below it talked about, it was an article by Catherine Martinko and it said, borrowing a cup of sugar benefits everyone. And it was written by, I believe she's an environmentalist or works, from, works for an environmentalist group, but she was discussing how more than the environmental factor, right? When you borrow sugar from a neighbor, any good from a neighbor, you're not buying more, you're not wasting more. It's building community because you're not just taking the sugar, you're having a conversation with them. And it's just interesting to think about how this has been lost, like you were bringing in with the idea of technology and how technology takes away agency. It also takes away community. We don't need to go out and talk to other people. We don't need to ask for that sugar. You can Amazon it right away. Or you can talk to them on social media. What do you think? I don't really know my neighbors. I'm back in the suburbs now living with my family. I think that's an isolating feature of the suburbs. And like you said, an isolating feature of modern times where we can get two-day delivery from Amazon right to our doorstep. We don't even have to talk to the person that delivers it. But back in the day... They used to have the paper boy and the newsboy, and you'd know them all, and they'd drop it off at your door, and maybe you have a conversation with them. It's a bit isolating. But also, I don't really envy those, pe- like those people. I kind of like the idea that we don't have to ask people for sugar in terms of that we don't have access to sugar when we need it. But it is important to realize that 
as technology ships, so does community. And parts of community are lost. If they're not replaced with anything just as substantial or more substantial, we've lost something as a culture. Yeah. And it's interesting that you bring in this idea of like, you don't envy it, not knowing your neighbors and seeing them as strangers. Because another thing I wanted to bring in is a Greek idea called Xenia. It's an ancient Greek idea, which still remains. And Xenia means guest friendship. And what it is, it's the sacred rule of hospitality. Good example of this is in the Odyssey, right? Odysseus goes and he goes to the Cyclops' house and he immediately starts eating all the Cyclops' food and drinking Cyclops' wine. To us, we, that may, we may be like, that's totally rude. Who does that? Who goes into someone else's house and takes their stuff? Of course. But this goes to that idea of Xenia, which is that as a host, you're supposed to welcome all strangers into your home. And the idea behind it being is you don't know who is a god in disguise. So treat every stranger like, you know, a family member, a friend, give them any food, any resources they need, because you don't know who they could be. And it's such a foreign concept, I think, to us. But there is something, almost, I mean, we spoke, we've spoken about nostalgia before, nostalgic about it, right? To think back to that idea that, oh, you can just go to some random stranger and they'll welcome you to their home. This idea of community that we've really lost. And especially, we can bring this component in too, being in a pandemic when the stranger could hold death, right? They could have a virus, they could have a disease that you could catch. Yeah. Even more isolated now. What's your take on all this? Starting with the idea of treating everyone with respect and hospitality because they might be God, that is such a contradicting idea for me. It's very biblical. If we look at it through a, a Christian perspective, it's rooted in, like you said, Greek and Roman cultures. A lot of uh, religious stories have Zeus appearing in disguise and judging people. I think of the song, How Much Does a Dollar Cost? by Kendrick Lamar, where a homeless person comes up to this character that Kendrick portrays, filling up their luxury vehicle at a gas station. And the person says, I just need a dollar from you. And this person says, I know you're going to spend it on booze and liquor and drugs. I'm not going to give it to you. Get out of here. And the person insists and the person continues to say no. And it turns out that that beggar was God. While I think it teaches a very valuable lesson, and I really enjoy that song. And it's rooted in this Christian teaching that God could be within any of us or God is everywhere. I think it's almost counterintuitive in that we're not acknowledging the humanity that a human needs sugar, a human needs a dollar, but that this voyeuristic God is watching us or might be that person and judging us without us knowing. Okay, am I helping this person because I care about my fellow man or because I don't want to be punished by God? And I want it to be the first one, but I feel like oftentimes it is the second one. I don't think it necessarily has to be taken literally. And a lot of historians who look at Greek tradition and myth argue that it's it was allegorical even for them. So very few people took it literally. And when we say, like, you don't know who a god may be in disguises, you don't know who that person may be. Could they help you in the long run? But I think it still gets to a similar point you're saying here, right? That, again, it's looking at people in this materialistic way. 
when we say you don't know who God may be in disguise, you're being nice to everyone. You're being respectful. You're welcoming strangers into your home because you have the mindset, oh, maybe this person will help me down the line. I'm going to bring in a little biology here. Let's hear it. But reciprocity and altruism is something that's interesting in biology. Do we see it in other animals, right? Altruism because natural selection says that your main purpose as an animal is to pass your genes on to the next generation, to survive. But we see altruistic behavior in animals. We see animals sometimes even sacrificing their lives for other animals. It turns out that at least in bats, because bats or vampire bats, vampire bats, the last animal you would think to be altruistic, right? Will share blood with other bats. If a bat is starving, it'll share blood with other bats, but they figured out it's because the bat, but is giving blood to the other bat because it knows that if I give blood to you, you'll give blood back to me. And if you don't, you'll be removed from the colony because no one will be able to trust you. So there's almost this natural ingrained instinct that when we're going to help someone, it's because we're going to get something in return. It's going to improve our survival odds. I'll bring up another question for you. And actually, let me pose this. When we talk about good deeds, right? And we talk about altruistic behavior, you realize that that motivation may simply be is because it makes you feel good. Is there any good deed we can do without getting something out of it? And feeling good about doing a good deed, does that cancel out the good deed? Does that not make it truly good? Hmm. Give you a simple question here. (laughs) Yeah, if you do, we've talked about this idea of intention versus uh, consequence. I'm not sure. Well, let's think back to the good thing, right? That we did the good thing, episode two. The good thing was working and working as a, as a measurement of goodness aligns with what you're saying is that you put the work in, you benefit society, and then in that way, you benefit yourself. The question of whether anything can be like truly, purely good or does goodness get reduced because we get something out of it? In short, I, I don't know. I think I personally think that if you have the intention of making someone else feel good or bettering the community, then that's a good thing. But if you're doing it only for some weird, detached, manipulative way, then that's that's really not good. It's perfectly fine to ask your neighbor for sugar unless you have this idea that, oh, I'm going to ask for sugar and it's going to lead to something else. Exactly. And bring it back to the song, right? And that's what makes us uncomfortable because it's taking something, something very innocent, right? Generally accepted rule that if your neighbor asks you for sugar, you give them the sugar back because that's just the right thing to do. And this narrator of the song is taking it a step further because he wants something out of it. He has some ulterior motive. And I think that's what puts us off. Anytime there's an ulterior motive involved, that's when we get uncomfortable. All right, Devin, here, here we go. Ready? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring it back to an uncomfortable place. So go for it. We're, we've looked at things through certain lenses of biology and Christianity. And if we're going back to this purely biological lens, it could be argued that everything that living creatures do leads back to sex, to reproducing, to furthering the genetic lineage. So if that's inherent into every action, does that make every action self-serving? And if every action is self-serving, does it then make those actions not good, even if they are beneficial? I mean, why is everyone making a podcast during the pandemic, right? Why does everyone feel the need to learn an instrument, to create, to write, to draw? I think an interpretation of it is that we're scared. Our, our survival is at risk, right? We could catch this pandemic and we could be gone at any moment. 
and we have this need to reproduce to keep some part of us alive. All art, all culture can be sort of interpreted as just a way to keep your essence going because that's that natural selection. That's that natural, most intrinsic drive is why we want to reproduce is we want to keep a part of us alive. We want our genes to be sustained. I would argue art, writing, literature, music, whatever it may be, the drive for that is because we want some kind of immortality. Even if it's not, maybe we're removed from simply spreading our genes on to the next generation, but that doesn't mean we've escaped that idea of keeping our essence remaining somehow. Mm. So it's gone from not, not only having just physical embodiments of your essence, which is a weird way to describe your kids. Hey, this is <laughs> right. my physical embodiment of my essence, Jimmy. But that's an example of humans wanting to be some sort of immortal being. And that's why we're so interested in these stories and myths of maybe anyone can be immortal is because that's really our ultimate goal also is to be, is to live on after our death. It's just this drive to survive that rules everything. And that doesn't mean getting back to this conversation of does it make it good or bad? This is how we operate. We can't escape it, right? deterministic like because some people say do we have any free will is anything our free will my response to it or the way i've always seen it is even if we don't have free will we perceive the world as having it right we perceive our actions we believe i put my hand over here like this i think that i got myself to do it even if the science shows that there's no free will everything is cause and effect so i'd argue that even if reality is we can't do a good deed because there's always some self-serving principle behind it then why consider it bad, right? This is the t world in which we're operating almost. Yeah, it's, it's almost as if, if we accept that sex is the main motivator for everything, it just becomes part of the new equilibrium. And we're like, okay, yeah, that level of baseline motivation is inherent in all biological carbon-based life. So, okay, Let's take that as a, a variable that's already mixed into the group when we're measuring morality or beneficial actions. But also, I think we're kind of removed, just like how we're removed from community because we're no longer asking for cups of sugar or where we can order things online. We're also removed from this biological drive, and it's really repressed. And I think that's why this song is, has an allure to it. And why I wanted to discuss it is because we say, wow, this person is a voyeur. They're sexually charged and motivated, as we all are, many of us, but it's very repressed. We're just naturally curious, too. We, we pine for socialness. The social side of this pandemic and quarantine is really difficult because a lot of us are socially starved right now. And it's, we're looking for, like you said, other ways to let that energy out. Learning a new instrument, taking up a new hobby, starting a podcast like we did. Mm -hmm. Whether we acknowledge it or not, because we see, we're in our houses all the time. It feels very safe, but we are in survival mode, right? There's a part we're scared to go outside, but human beings are inherently or naturally social. That's why we were able to succeed as a species and survive is because we were able to develop the mental capacity to be in communities and exchange ideas and learn from one another. Mm -hmm. And to take that away, I mean, we've all, you read about people in solitary confinement and they say it's the worst type of torture or punishment you can give to someone because we need 
other people. We need contact with other people. No matter if even if you're introverted or you like to be to yourself, you still need people around you. A podcast is a way of socializing almost. Yeah. Not even with the person you're with, but you assume that other people are going to listen to your voice. They're going to hear your voice. Even if it's not two way, at least you're coming in contact with others. And up until this point, we've talked about voyeurism as inherently sexual. And I believe the term originated in that way. But Devin, you and I looked it up before. And at the end, it kind of had this annotation at the end is like, maybe not in a sexual way. The, the word has evolved to be just kind of looking in on a situation with maybe someone not knowing. And podcasts are kind of eavesdropping on a conversation between two people or two or more people. Obviously, the podcasters posted it and gave this unwritten consent to, yeah, you can listen in on us. We want you to hear. That's why we're posting online. This eavesdropping on life with an underlying unsaid consent, it's very new. Only in like the last 20 years has this been able to be done. Podcasts have only really gone off in the last 10 years. So it's interesting to see where this almost voyeur economy is going to take us. Like what's next after podcasts? When I'm taking a break from talking with my friends in person or over Zoom, I'm like, let me throw a podcast on to relax. Like, isn't that so odd that humans relax by listening to conversation? I think that's beautiful and weird and so human. Yeah, and I think something you said is very important, right? The differentiation between something voyeuristic and a podcast is a podcast is the consent that I'm putting this conversation to be heard. The things I'm saying, I'm saying deliberately, or at least I'm trying to say deliberately with the intention that someone else is going to hear them. Why sugar on my tongue is off-putting, why it makes us uncomfortable is because there's no consent on behalf of the person that this person is thinking about. With this media, with this kind of podcast, and I think it's actually something interesting to consider too. I don't know, but I don't think most of the time the variety of people who could be listening to this, right? What people could even be getting out of it. And you're signing this contract almost that I'm going to put my conversation out there and you're allowed to getting even bigger ideas of like how we interpret art and music. Every song, the artist puts it out there with the knowledge that the person who hears this song may not interpret it the way I did. They may get something completely different out of it. They may hate it. Yeah. And learning and being okay with that, making that sort of deal signing that contract as you release things like this and i think it's okay to put out art that if purposefully is meant to like make you uncomfortable or make you dislike it that's that's a, a form of art that should be ignored and i think sugar on my tongue i don't think david byrne and the rest of the talking heads were like oh this song's gonna be a hit everyone's gonna love it and it's gonna be the happiest song ever that people are gonna play at their weddings it was meant to be uncomfortable. It was meant to be grating and have multiple meanings and be also just a jittery punk new wave song. That's, that's art. And that's exciting. Using art and music to feel these ways that they may not get in their normal lives, which is willingly consenting to say, oh, I'm going to put on this really sad song to be sad. Like I'm going to listen to somebody like you by Adele on purpose because it's going to make me sad and you can almost control an emotion that you're actively avoiding or that your biology is saying oh avoid sadness avoid anger avoid isolation but 
if you consent to it by like playing a sad podcast or a scary crime drama or a horror movie, we're consenting into something that our body is telling us we should avoid. And that's a whole economy. Horror movies and crime dramas are million dollar industries. When does a podcast engage you the most? When does a piece of literature, when does a song, when they express some feeling that you felt exactly the same, right? Mm -hmm. When it hits that thing and you're like, I felt that. And it gives you a connection with another person. Even if you can't respond to this conversation, even if you can't contribute, even if you can't say what you're thinking, if that other person in some far off area, right, connects with you in some way, that feels good. I've been on TikTok recently, and I'm afraid that I'm just scrolling through TikTok until I hit terminal velocity, where all of my idiosyncrasies have been validated by some random person on TikTok. We're like, does this very specific thing ever happen to you? And I'm like, yeah, I do that too. Thanks, TikTok. Have you ever had that experience? Like you just said. No, of course. Yeah. I was reading like, I was reading a Hemingway short story and I'm like, he is saying exactly what I am feeling. And that's disturbing, but it was also very validating and vindicating. And it was like, it's just nice to have that shared experience. And build that community because really, and I think we lose it. Well, people say we lose it, but we haven't, I'd argue, right? This idea of community. The big fear is this social media isolating it. Depends on how you use it. And I think the, people, the fact that people do use it for community is beneficial. And it opens you up to a wider community than you would be able to in other circumstances. You can talk with someone on the other side of the world that shares your interest. When we talk about what's important, when, I think, when we talk about what needs to be prioritized, I think community is very important. That inherent drive in human beings is to be around other people, to have that podcast playing in the background, to hear other voices. And in a pandemic, that's very difficult. And being able and having the remote or technological setting to connect with people is important. And it, it serves different functions. Whereas in the past, we saw it as isolating. Now we can see it as a, a tool for connectivity. Yeah. And I, I think this is a great way to kind of wrap all of this uncomfortable and biological and driven conversation we've had is that we have commonalities that we share and to have them acknowledged, even if they're darker or uncomfortable to talk about, is so validating and could lead to healing even in difficult times like pandemics. And we do that by communicating and having strong communities where we feel safe. You don't know who the God may be in disguise, right? You don't know who that person may be that gets you, that connects with you. So did we make the song? Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say it could be a, a horse. Person. Yeah, I was going to say that. <laughs> I took it. I got it first. <laughs> That's full circle. I was trying to do the full circle moment of the day, but you got it. And I'm happy for you. You set me up. I heard that we both had it. But what are you yeah. going to stay hungry for, Kevin? What, what are you going to keep in mind moving forward? I'm going to see how I feel about sugar on my tongue going forward. I really do feel energized in, in, in a way I haven't felt before coming out of a conversation like this. This is not really an experience I've had with a song where I still like it, but it has now a darker twist to it. What about you? Yeah, I'm thinking really a lot about internet presence and social media and what you release. I mean, it's something they tell you throughout grade school especially our generation, when all of these things like Facebook and other social media platforms became prominent, is think very carefully about what you post online, those images, who can see it. But I think for the first time during this conversation, I really grasped how wide an audience you're speaking to. 
what we might say might be interpreted a totally different way. Like those ideas of intentionality versus impact, right? So I really want to reassess and analyze and consider what I put out there, how it might be taken to a wider audience and be careful and deliberate about what I'm producing. How absolutely meta to end a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And there's no better way, I think, to end a Devin and Kevin Stop Making Sense than to be as meta as you can in any given moment. So thank you all so much for watching. I'm Nelvin. And I am an ancient Greek with dirty hair, a cat god, an animated snake, and... Elvis Presley. Thank you. Thank you very much. I have left the building. <laughs> yes. This has been Devin and Kevin Stop Making Sense. We'll see you later. Stop